Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, entrepreneur in residence at Red River West, co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to episode 41 of Tech Deciphered. In this episode, we will talk about the evolution of venture capital. We will start it with its history. We will discuss the business of venture capital. What is it all about? And we will go into the process of venture capital. How do venture capital firms and funds actually operate? Finally, we will talk about the future of venture capital, the immediate future and the more long-term one. How will it change? Maybe starting with history. Venture capital actually goes back a long way. Obviously, we always like to go back to Second World War, the military complex in the US going full throttle, a lot of IP being generated, a lot of really useful things for defense that could be applied to the mainstream markets. And in some ways, that's the beginning of the history of Silicon Valley and the beginning of the history of venture capital at scale with public-private partnerships, grants and money from government, technology transfer into areas that were ultimately areas that went fully outside of defense and into normal markets, so to speak. But actually, venture capital goes back even further. Venture capital and high-risk projects go back to, for example, the time of discoveries, the time of trading by boat. Actually, that is where the term carried interest comes from. It is carried interest. What happened was the boat owners were going to take merchandise from one place to the other. And because a lot of these missions and projects had a lot of risk to them, not only they got paid to do it, but they also got paid in kind to do it with carried interest. They would keep some of their carried interest. And that's how the term carried interest really comes into these high-risk profile projects. So venture capital is a very high-risk endeavor or a higher-risk endeavor than normal. Its history starts around World War II with private-public partnerships. I feel that between the age of discovery and World War II, there might have been the age of whaling in the U.S. from what I understand. You know, you want to say a few words on this? Yeah, so it goes back to whaling, it goes back to all these endeavors and projects in shipping. The military complex really expands it in the private market, so public-private partnerships, getting money into it. We start having, in venture capital, actually early days, there was a lot of East Coast players in the market, and then which were more coming from the banking angle to it, just pushing into it. And then we started having, because of a lot of aerospace defense projects happening around California and in California, there was a migration to players that were more, I would say, businessy, less banking 
And some of the early VCs in this market, people like Pitch Johnson, Bill Draper, the granddaddies of us all. Bill was involved in a firm with Pitch. I think that was one of the original firms, if I recall correctly. Bill went on, I think, to found Sutter Hill, which is still one of the oldest in continuity. Pitch went to found Asset Management, which, if I'm not totally incorrect, is the oldest VC firm in Silicon Valley into continuity. A lot of a shout out to the Asset Management guys, very good friends there. Obviously, from Bill, we had Tim's his son. Now we have his grandchildren. So that's a bit of a dynasty. Sutter Hill's still around and doing very well. Thank you. So there's definitely all these roots that go back to it. And then in the late 80s into the early 90s, when we started having some really innovative companies that came into the market, you know, Fairchild, Intel, there was a little bit of a search for the next wave of venture capitalists. And out of that search of the next wave of venture capitalists, we had people like Mike Moritz, who used to be a journalist, actually. Yeah. John Doerr used to be a senior executive at Intel, coming into the market and really being some of the most known VCs of all time at Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins, call for them buyers. Through those times, just to define epics in venture capital, I think the epic in venture capital that we moved from was the very IP-driven post-war epic to an epic that was all about what I call the country club proprietary networks. Mm-hmm. I knew people that had done well. They were about to start their next company, an idea. I was willing to really feed them relatively low risk. I know they were successful. They had built stuff before. They had a great track record. It was almost like real risk, right? I was incubating the idea, giving you money and letting you go with it. And then for a long, long time, to be very honest, until probably the late 90s, until really the internet 1.0 movement happened, that was about it. That was the playbook in venture capital, country club, networks, etc. Another legend we might want to talk about, Don Valentine, who started Sequoia. And I believe he was a very famous salesperson, head of sales at a big firm before founding Sequoia, if I'm not wrong, you know, and he was very successful in that endeavor. A lot of legacies from these guys who started funds in the 80s. Yes, he was, I believe, at National Semiconductor. Yes. And then it's a little bit unclear... How big was Sequoia when they started? I've heard that they started with 5 million by a single LP. I'm not sure this is totally accurate. And that capital may have been their first LP. I'm not sure again, but it certainly started in the early 70s, I believe 1972. Yes, you're right, 70s. Everyone's like talks about Sequoia like it's a brand new firm and they've been around for a long while. They've had obviously an amazing track record. They've gone through this. Mike Martz is sort of a continuation of that route. But the playbook was really this playbook. It's people that I knew, people that I knew were talented. I call it the country club thing. Is I'm not saying it in a nasty way, but it was direct access to people that otherwise it would be difficult to access. There was no internet. There was no nothing at scale. Then the internet happened and many things happened around that time. And in some ways, Sequoia, Kleiner, I believe were at that time the guys Benchmark started existing around then in the 90s, but they were probably not as amazing and famous as they are today. Although, to be honest, I would say they're probably the first big riders of the internet movement. They made a lot of money in those early funds. But the playbook was still more or less the same. We started going from the country club into universities, into young entrepreneurs. That may have moved a little bit, but in effect, it was a similar play. It was proprietary networks. I have access to those people when they're starting their next company, I have access to those professors when they're starting. VMware was started by Diane and her husband, who were professors. So there was a lot of sort of this linkage to academia that filled very well with the whole country club, proprietary network, ethos of it, and caught a lot of the early internet plays because Google was at Stanford and you know Sergey and Larry were there, etc. So that's sort of the first real big epic of the professional VC, the post-war, post-IP thing. That's the first big epic. 
And then no innovation for a long, long time. I would allege that until probably mid-naughties, late-naughties, there was almost no innovation in Playbook. VCs were mostly inbound-driven proprietary networks in the sense of who do I know, what companies are they at, etc. And then all of a sudden, something happened. And the something that happened, I will credit it to two people, but I don't think they're the only two people or the only two firms that really did this. But I always credit Mark Suster and what he did at Upfront. It used to be called something else. I forgot the name. Mark will forgive me, I'm pretty sure. But Mark Suster with both sides of the table and really answering these questions was a very opaque space. People didn't understand legal documents and he sort of started demystifying and being the friendly VC. Brad Felt for sure was also part of that movement. Certainly Union Square Ventures with Fred Wilson were part of that early movement. They started blogging about it. So I've already said three names. And then the guys who institutionalized it in some ways and said, no, no, we need to have a brand and we need to have media and we need to reach out there. Because by and large, a lot of the VC firms were very stealthy or they were very much in their corner on Sandhill and they did their thing. Uh, Benchmark had no website, <laughs> you know, still does have a very poor, no website, like a splash page. Just, if you know us, you know us. If you don't know us, you shouldn't be here, right? Type thing. But basically, Andreessen Orwitz, right? Ben and Mark were the guys who sort of shifted on his head and said, no, 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 we need to be known. We need to be known. People don't know who we are. And they launched, I think their first vintage fund is 2008. I might be wrong, but it's around that time. And the rest is history. That playbook changed. VC firms started branding themselves. They started really being out there, having thought leadership. Now it's almost a given that each associate, principal, even partner at a VC firm is posting blogs every month about something that they know something about, whatever. People are very active on Quora. They speak publicly a lot. They get interviewed by journalists. So it's become a profession that is clearly more visible. And then I would say the final shift we've seen in the history of VC in terms of epics and playbook is probably also best described by Andreessen Horowitz or maybe by larger AUM players like NEA and others, which is the whole notion of shared services. Once we invest in a company, we'll not only back the company with capital, but we'll back the company with market development, recruiting, PR, and all these things, and we'll make that available to our portfolio companies. Yes, that has been a dramatic change. And I agree with you. I mean, having been on the other side of the tech industry, they have seen a drastic change in terms of information available on how it works, how this industry works, how does it work from the VC side, from the entrepreneur side. And I've been that change over the past 25 years, where it has become way more open, way more transparent. Another actor that helped was Y Combinator, standardizing term sheets, for instance, that has been very helpful. So definitely significant trends. Anyone can become somewhat knowledgeable. Some great books, by the way, Secrets of Sand Hill Road by Scott Cooper, for instance. Another one around uh, deal terms. There's been uh, quite a few good books about this so that you can uh, read books, you can read blogs, you can follow Twitter and get a good sense about how this stuff is working. And I think that's very helpful for everyone. As a VC, you want to understand how entrepreneurs are working. And as an entrepreneur, you want to understand how a VC are working because it's always important to be aligned when you are working together to try to achieve something bigger than just yourself. In a correction, Don Valentine starts to create with 3 million from capital. It was from capital. And it was Capital was excited because he was doing this angel investing on the side and they started paying attention to it and they decided to give him money. Capital obviously is a huge asset manager, one of the largest in the world. That's how incredible things start with small amounts of capital sometimes, 3 million. I think that's the last epoch that we're in. We're still probably in that epoch. I think asymmetries of information to the point you were making are part of the past. And in some ways, I as a venture capitalist, I believe it's also my duty to actually educate even as we are negotiating because we're going to be in a relationship for at least five to seven years, maybe even longer. So if they realizes we screw them on the deal, 
on some obscure clause or whatever, it's <laughs> sort of not very helpful. I mean, you can get away with it maybe once or twice in your career as a VC, but if you do it systemically, and we know a few players out there that sometimes do these funky things, if you do it systemically, everyone in the market knows. I think those asymmetries are, are slightly disappearing. Obviously, it is still true that a VC will do a lot more deals than a, an entrepreneur. I mean, of course. I mean, even if you're a serial entrepreneur, you've raised money, I don't know, 10 times in your life. If I'm a VC and I've invested in 50 portfolio companies, I've done 50 deals. So I'm already ahead, right? I've done more deals. I have more experience. It's part of my bread and butter. It's sort of core to my business in some ways because it's where I do my returns. Sorry, maybe just on that point as an entrepreneur, that's why it's important to get very knowledgeable lawyers. That's the one thing I've seen as a mistake from many entrepreneurs is to pick lawyers who don't know VC, who don't know how a timesheet is built, how it's negotiated when you go to final documents. And on the VC side, it's horrible because you have to work with someone who has no clue and focus on the wrong points or, or even doesn't understand the whole concept. So please, it's as expensive to get a lawyer who knows VC as it is to get a lawyer who doesn't know VC, but on the long run, the one who doesn't know VC will have put you in trouble. There's definitely that. There's the 10 or 15 law firms that everyone knows that ac are active in the startup world. You guys can ask your friends and your colleagues if you're an entrepreneur. They all know who they are by no specific order. You know, the Morgan Lewis's of the world, the Wilson Sonsini's, the Goodwin Proctor's, Gunderson, the Cooley's, the Gunderson Detmers. I'm probably missing a bunch that will be pissed off at me. The DLA Pipers. There's a bunch of them out there that just do a lot of VC deals. They're experienced in doing it. They know how to deal with it. And there's an advantage to that as well, because the likelihood is your VC will have another VC, a leather law firm that is in that list of 10 or 15. And so when both are talking to each other, they sort of know each other's draft. So it's actually much easier to, for them to do business, right? They won't be looking for funky clauses. They won't be having stupid discussions, etc. That said, two other elements that I would highlight on the legal side. One is there are some law firms or lawyers that are exceptional at this, and that's the only business they do. And there's a couple of them that come to mind right now. They're also exceptional. And so those guys are still, although they're not part of the top law firms, they're exceptional at what they do. They also do it all the time, et cetera. They, they may be a lot cheaper, et cetera, which is helpful. And then finally, the last element is you have to manage your lawyers. So that, never forget that, right? That's the opposite error. Oh, I have Goodwin. I have Morgan Lewis. I have DLA Piper. They're representing me. No, 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 no. <laughs> and entrepreneurs make this mistake all the time, where at some point they're being run by their lawyers. And I'm like, sorry, is this our deal or is this a deal that I'm doing with your law firm? Because my law firm is representing me and my VC firm, okay? They don't have a blank sheet to go and negotiate with your lawyers or with you, okay? So I don't appreciate the opposite either. And many times there's just business decisions that need to be made. So I find most of the stuff between lawyers... If there's someone on at least one of the sides that is assertive around managing lawyers, gets done. So again, they're amazing. They're great. Right. Using the top ones is important. Managing their costs is important as well. But you have to be thoughtful on how to manage them. And obviously, with experience as an entrepreneur, you'll get better at it. It is part of our core job as VCs, certainly, to manage our lawyers and to make sure that we get exactly what we want out of the deal and the dynamics of the deal. And these are funky deals, as I mentioned before, because they're long-term deals. We're going to be together for a long time. So if we screwed you on the deal and it becomes very evident on the next round that you raise because some lawyers are going to look at it again, they're like, what is this thing here? There's seniority on the waterfall to these guys, whatever. I mean, you're going to get in trouble. It's really, you have to be a good actor. Maybe switching to the business of venture capital. What is the business of venture capital, Bertrand? That's a big topic. Ultimately, as a VC, you get money from other people. It's not your own money. I mean, uh, there would be your own money, but uh, just a small piece of it, maybe 2%, 1% to 2%. 
Um, ultimately, you are getting money from other investors, limited partners, as they are called. And these limited partners, they are pension funds, they are family offices, wealthy individuals. So they might be of different types. And your goal as a VC is to give them returns. They give you money so that you give them money back and that you give them money back, obviously, while beating some measure of success. This measure of success will be probably returns on the S&P 500. And this measure of success will have to take into account the fact that their investment is not liquid. So that it's money that they will only get back after 5, 7, 10, 12 years. So they have to beat returns from an S&P 500, for instance, because this one is liquid. You can take your money out whenever you want. So your business is to make money for other institutions. Obviously, in order to achieve that, you have to do something with that money. And so you are going to invest. You are going to invest in entrepreneurs, in startups. And for that, you have to find the best ones. You have to convince the best ones to work with you. And ultimately, once you have convinced them and signed a deal, and obviously a good deal, and a good deal means win-win, as we just say, it has to be win-win between the VC firm and the entrepreneurs, because this is a repeat game. So you will invest multiple times in that entrepreneur, in that startup, and you will have to make multiple investments in multiple startups, and the work get out quickly if you are not fair. And then once you have invested, you need to support your investment. So as we say, some firms have different levels of support. Uh, some have literally teams of people that you can get access for free. Some have teams of people, you get access for a fee. And some don't have teams of people. It's just uh, the partners and the analysts uh, supporting you as part of their job. And from there, ultimately, you have to exit the investment you have made. And obviously, you, you need to exit with some level of success. And when you say you have to exit, you have to find opportunities or, or the startups you invested will find opportunities themselves so that there is liquidity for everyone involved. Although there are different structures out there, the normal structure of venture capital is a fund. And so we venture capitalists are fund managers. Yes. To all the points that Bertrand said, we are about returning that capital to the investors in that fund. The majority of that capital normally is put in the funds by the limited partners, by the investors, could be corporations, family offices, endowments, pension funds, um, high net worth individuals. There's a variety of different players that could be limited partners. To your point, there's a GP contribution. GP contributions vary quite a bit. One to 5% seems to be the magic number of the size of the fund, the one to 5% number. But there are, for example, funds that have a significantly more of GP contribution because they've been around for a long time. And there's different structures. We were talking about Sutter Hill earlier that goes all the way back. And Sutter Hill operates as a capped organization. They're not really a fund in that sense. So, you know, you are in it and then you can leave, but it's almost like you're in a cap table rather than you're in a fund. Whereas we're managing normally funds that are 10 years uh, plus one plus one, right? So maximum 12 years and it's like, so that fund needs to return at some point, right? To your point, relatively illiquid unless there's exits and liquidations and there's all these strange and funky dynamics around it. The main objective is clearly the returns. If you can't return the fund above a certain amount, you'll lose the right to exist as fund managers going forward. The value piece of what you bring to entrepreneurs has become more crucial in this last epic of the Andreessen Horowitzes, et cetera, of the world. It is pretty vital. And the elements of distinctiveness, I'm, am I like a, a super well-known person in the market that's just starting a VC firm? So it's like the celebrity VC fund or the person who was an entrepreneur who's done really well is now starting a new thing. Normally, the business of VC gets 
basically scaled through time, right? So it's even if you're a superstar, you've done very well in your past life, the odds that you'll start with a stupidly large fund are very small. Right? Don Valentine started with his 3 million. Founders Fund, I believe, started with 40 to 50 million in their first fund. And Peter was already super well known by then. And he was already doing a variety of other things beyond well past PayPal. So things grow. They start, they grow. And then with your track record, you can grow them more. And that's how fund management really changes in venture capital. Thank you for listening Tech Deciphered episode 41. As a conclusion, this was our first episode in a series of two episodes about the evolution of venture capital. We just concluded episode 41, talking about the history of venture capital as well as the business of venture capital. In the next episode, episode 42, we are going to talk about the process of VC. We are going to share some stats around venture capital and we will also share our perspective about the future of venture capital. See you next time. Thank you, Nuno. Thank you, Bertrand. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.